Wonderful to see uh, all of your beautiful faces this morning. You are, uh, you are treasured friends, and uh, you'll be missed and prayed for by our family. And this morning, it's a joy to, uh, to share from God's Word, and uh, we're going to come out of exile this morning. So, praise God for that. I'm going to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36 to help us get a recap of what we've studied so far and prepare us for this, this last lesson today um, on coming out of exile. Second Chronicles was written um, post-exile. It was written in a way that uh, allowed God's promises to be seen in the rearview mirror, to see God's faithfulness and to see what's happened. Second Chronicles chapter 36, I'm going to read from uh, 11 through the conclusion of this chapter to just kind of catch us up on, on what we've seen. Zedekiah, verse 11, was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand, and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels." He took them into exile in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, and all the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath, to fulfill seventy years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put into writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Beautiful summary. And it allows us to see what God had to do to his people. There was no remedy for their sin. They had to endure a consequence. They were taken into Babylon. They were taken into exile. We started our study with uh, looking at certain men and certain kings and certain kingdoms that God would use to fulfill his purposes. You'll remember Nimrod, the great hunter. You'll remember Sennacherib and his besieging of of King Hezekiah. You'll remember also um, Josiah, the reformer, who found the the book of of the Lord and brought about a, a small reform. And you'll remember um, Jeremiah and, and Zedekiah. And, and this week, we're going to look at 
one man, a very unlikely man, that God would use to set his people free. This passage that we just read talks about Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is someone that, that God used in mighty ways to work on behalf of his people to end the exile. And so much of what we're going to see about this Cyrus the Great today was intentionally by the Lord prefiguring Jesus the Christ, who has set us free from exile. So we're going to spend our, our last uh, week uh, together looking at Isaiah chapter 45. With this summary in view, with recalling some of the names of the kings and the kingdoms, we're going we're gonna to look at this Isaiah chapter 45, and we're going to understand how God used a pagan king to work his plan for the good of his people and for his own renown. Give you a moment to get to Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to read through this chapter and we're going to make some observations um, about this pagan king. This is a very unique chapter in scripture in that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking to a potentially unborn pagan king. This is really remarkable because all of this is, is predictive prophecy. What we just saw in Second Chronicles was looking backwards. But what we see in this chapter is it's likely 200 years before Cyrus would make this proclamation to set the people of Judah free and send them back to Jerusalem. So this is a a unique passage. Just imagine this, that God, through Isaiah, is speaking to an unborn pagan king. What a remarkable text. And so that's what we're going to look at. Um, Just uh, to keep our our view of Babylon in mind, Babylon, as we've, as we've talked about in the biblical theology of Babylon, is Babylon represents everything in this world that is humanly impressive and opposed to God. We've talked about how Babylon and our time in Babylon was missional, right? But this week I want to look at Babylon as something that's temporary, something that is a system opposed to God that will be brought to an end by God. So we saw Assyria brought down by Babylon, and today we're going to see Cyrus and the Persians bringing down Babylon. And all of this is prefiguring what what Christ has done and is doing in bringing down his opposition and establishing his eternal kingdom. I'm going to take us through uh, this chapter, 45. We're actually going to start in uh, chapter 44, verse 24. Isaiah 44. Verse 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins." Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Verse 28, we have our first mention of Cyrus, a king that God calls by name, and he refers to him as a shepherd. This is uh, the first of the kind of um, pointing towards Christ that we'll see. Um, in, in the text that we'll look at today. And the idea of shepherd that we always have is, is leading of the people. But in, in this particular context, what we're talking about is a protector of the people. We talk about in, uh, in the book of John where Christ says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd will lay down his life for his flock, 
right? And in this case, the uh, Cyrus, this pagan king, is going to act on behalf of the people of Judah, and he's going to act as a protector for them. So not a spiritual leader, but as a protector. And so this, uh, this verbiage of Cyrus being a shepherd is important because it points to Christ. I think last week we talked a little bit about the uh, paradigm of interpreting Isaiah's prophecy, right? You've got a mountain that's closer and a mountain that's further away. As you're looking out towards East County, you, you see Black Mountain first, and then you see Mount Woodson. And that's really the way God worked through Isaiah the prophet. He would point to Cyrus in the near term, but at the same time, he's signaling towards Christ, who would ultimately be a shepherd for his people. And that's a, a powerful sort of double meaning that we see. Then moving into chapter 45, we see the text shift a little bit, and, and he's going beyond just saying, I'm naming Cyrus, I'm mentioning him. Now he's actually speaking to him. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Verse 1 is a very unique word in Hebrew. The word, the, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. That verb, um, that word anointed, is a, is a kingly word. It's a selecting of a king. As um, Saul was anointed king and David was anointed king, this is an idea of kingship. It would translate to be the word Messiah, which we know then would later be translated to mean the Christ. And so, again, Isaiah, as he's given this prophetic message, is pointing to Cyrus as a designated king, someone that God has chosen and put in a kingly place, to point to the coming king, the coming of Jesus. Of course, we know, and we'll talk a little bit more a little bit later on about how that term anointed refers to Jesus the Christ. But in, this, uh, in these first verses, what we see is God speaking directly to this king. And he's saying, look, these doors will be open before you. These military conquests will be given to you. Just like uh, Hezekiah, it wasn't Hezekiah's military strategy that thwarted the Assyrians. It was God that did it. And so Cyrus the Great is going to be given victory to establish a kingdom even more vast than that of Babylon because God allowed it to happen. It's very interesting, but it says um, in verse uh, 4, verse 2, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And uh, the um, cylinder of Cyrus, uh, an ancient manuscript that was preserved from that day, talked about how when Cyrus the Great came in to conquer Babylon, the gates of the city were opened. There was no besieging. There was no siege ramp. It was an open door for Cyrus to come in and to establish his reign as a, as a Persian leader conquering Babylon. There was minimal resistance. The gates, the doors were opened. And that is exactly as um, that took place to show that, that God's word would be fulfilled. 
So that's a, an important little detail. Um, the cylinder of Cyrus would make some interesting reading if you feel like Googling and learning a little bit about that, um, how the validity of God's word is, is confirmed with archaeological finds. More importantly, verse 4 gives the motivation for why God is allowing this pagan king to have this victory, to have this success. He says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. And that is an amazing, um, that is an amazing lesson um, that God will use um, pagans. God will use those who do not fear him to act on behalf of his people unbeknownst to them. When you think about uh, Pharaoh putting Joseph in a place of authority, right? I've, by God's grace, been able to see it even in my own life, how God uses a non-believer to act on, on the behalf and in the best interest of those who fear him and follow him. Praise God for that. That reveals something very, very important about God's character. Even uh, in times of political turmoil and uh, rather unusual elections, all of this is firmly in God's hands. And in some level, whether we see it now or we see it in the long term, everything that is transpiring is done with the sake of his servant in view, right? With the sake of his people in view. Verse 4 um, in ESV says, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. This is important because, again, this is about 200 years before Cyrus the Great would experience the full fruition of, of his authority as this king over a vast empire. God's saying, before he's even born, I name you. And in the uh, King James Version, I believe it says, I surname you, though you do not know me. And that's important because there were several Cyruses. There was Cyrus the Younger, Cyrus the Great, a bunch of different Cyruses. But in this case, he's saying, I give you a nickname, right? It's not redundant. He's not repeating himself. He's saying, I give you a name, Cyrus, and I'm giving you another name, which is the Great, right? That's an important title. And all of this in this chapter doesn't point to Cyrus the Great. It points to Jesus the Greatest. And that's amazing. This is, this is all prefiguring and symbolism that points us to Christ, he says in verse 5 why he's saying all of this in advance. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. God's interested in his renown. And he used Cyrus the Great to establish this Persian empire that was vast in its territory to do his work so that God would be known. Moving down to verse 8 we take a, a brief detour from looking at Cyrus to focus on God, the one who's writing these words, who's giving these words, and a, a clear lesson on God's sovereignty. Verse 8 says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. 
He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. What an amazing, we could preach for this on weeks, right? And we could meditate on this for a lifetime. This is God's sovereignty clearly stated. He talks about the uh, pot speaking to the potter. He talks about a child saying to his father or saying to his mother, what are you making, right? What an amazing uh, illustration. We saw throughout Jeremiah and, and different places where God uses potters and pottery and potter's fields and all of these as powerful analogies. And then, of course, we get to Romans chapter 9, and we have this amazing explanation of God's sovereignty. God forms exactly what he pleases. He chooses some instruments, some clay pots for noble purposes, and others he, he purposes to be the uh, waste can right? But God does all of that because he is sovereign. And that theology that we see in Romans 9 comes from here. And we see that that chapter in Romans 9 has worked out um, a great deal for us in our own faith and our understanding of who God is. One of the hallmarks of, of uh, reformed doctrine is resting in that sovereignty. God does as he pleases, and he does it for his glory and for our good. Martin Luther, um, as he uh, penned the 95 Theses, was very, very much impacted by what he read in Romans chapter 9. And that comes from these words spoken by God himself, speaking of a pagan king. I'll use a pagan king if I want to. The most likely thing for God to do in bringing his people out of exile was to have a a coup, to have a young Jewish leader that would lead a revolt, right? But what did God do? God used the Persian king. And that, of course, prefigures the gospel, That prefigures Christ coming, the most unlikely plan, right? Think of the triumphal entry. What was it that the people of Jerusalem were expecting? They were expecting a conqueror. They were expecting a a brave young Jewish man to overthrow the Romans, right? And what did they get? They got God incarnate, giving his life to set his people free. And not from the Romans, but from sin and death. And and so all of this, with God's sovereignty, demands our attention and demands us changing our, our, our view and conforming our view of God to this text. Verse 13 talks about the, the short-term and the long-term plan of God for his people as the sovereign creator. He talks about his, his hand outstretched the heavens, how his hand formed the earth, and how he put man on the earth. And if he can do all of those things, he can certainly act on the behalf of little Judah, Right? And here he says it, I have stirred up in him, referring to Cyrus, I have stirred up in him righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is, uh, this is interesting. Um, Cyrus writes of himself in some of the ancient literature that he was a, a magnanimous man, that he was a benevolent king. One of his policies, rather than um, having heavy taxes and having heavy burdens like Nebuchadnezzar, his way to rule the people was through um, looking and acting in their well-being. He was uh, the proverbial pluralist. He allowed the people that had been conquered by Babylon to uh, keep their own religion, to keep their own language, and in a sense, would do good to them in exchange for their loyalty. It was a pretty effective plan. One of the things that he did, as he had this, this righteousness, this, con- this compulsion in him, was to act on behalf of the people of Israel. He says, He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Cyrus, 
the first thing he did was say, you know what, you guys have been in Babylon long enough. Don't you guys have your own city? Don't you guys have a temple that you should be taking care of? And you know what? Not only did he act without thinking of his own financial gain, but he also emptied out the treasuries, took what the Babylonians had, had basically uh, taken ownership of, and sent it back to Jerusalem to be placed in the house of the Lord. We'll look at that text in just a minute, but all of that came to pass. And he did it because God compelled him to, not because he had anything to gain in it. That, of course, really prefigures Christ, right? He acted on our behalf with no gain for himself, but laid down his life for us, paying that price. Not for a price or for reward, but for the love of his people. Verse 14, we continue to see how God is describing this ruler. He says, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, which is Ethiopia, and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Verse 14 is interesting. It says that these conquered nations, these nations that are coming under Cyrus's hands, are going to say, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. This is a, a rebuttal from the Lord to Cyrus, clarifying on why he's really acting. The uh, cylinder of Cyrus that I mentioned, Cyrus attributes all of his actions to Marduk, the king of, uh, the, the, the prince, if you will, the lord of the Babylonians. When Cyrus acted, he felt that he was given his divine authorization by Marduk, by a pagan god. And so as God is writing this, even in advance of Cyrus's life, he's making it really clear, <laughs> you got the wrong god. The God of Israel is the one that's making you act as you are. That's a, really a, an interesting lesson there, that as God acts in the hearts of unbelievers and, and compels unbelievers, they don't rightfully identify who it is that's working in them and for whose benefit they make the decisions that they do. But God clarifies all of that for us, and we can see that. When wicked rulers, when um, unbelieving authorities act, they're not always... Uh, compelled by what they think they're being compelled by. But God is working. God is working in their hearts. And so, verse 15, God is saying, look, it's not Marduk. It's not your false gods. It's the God of Israel. He says, truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And verse 18, for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge and carry their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. God is making clear claims 
through the prophet Isaiah of who he is and how all of this fate of his people that appear to be abandoned in exile is really in their hands. He's doing all of this so that he can make it clear that it's not these false gods that are going to save them, but it's him working on their behalf. This is, this is really, really key. He talks about how um, the people have, have no knowledge and they keep on praying to a God that cannot save. That praying to gods that could not save was the very thing that got him into this problem in the first place. That idolatry, that misplaced worship, is what caused the consequence. But God, in his loving kindness, has said, Look, I forgive you of that idolatry. I want to restore you. I want you to bring you back. And I'm orchestrating all of this plan so that you'll know that there is no God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Those are powerful words. And if we've gained nothing out of the theology of Babylon, those words are to be treasured. There is no God besides him. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides him. Verse 21 is also really important for us to understand uh, in terms of predictive prophecy. Um, Prophetic writings are hard. Uh, As we look at the sort of rainbow of evangelical churches, um, prophecy is is hard to work with. We have very differing views, but what we see here is clearly predictive prophecy. Declare and present your case and let them counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Again, looking at how all of these, these dates coincide, we, we know that um, Hezekiah and Sennacherib, that would have taken place probably around 700 B.C. We know that Jerusalem fell around 586, and we know that the decree of Cyrus, that we'll talk about in just a minute, was 539 B.C. And so we have these dates, and we know that these words were spoken um, before it even took place. And so God is using that prophetic prophecy to make perfectly clear that he is eternal, and that he has command over time and space. Isaiah chapter 46, I think we'll um, take a quick preview forward. Verse 46, verse 8. Again, with making reference to Cyrus and his military conquests, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is Cyrus right here in verse 11. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness. I will bring my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. That's clearly predictive prophecy. God's saying, I established all of this from ancient times. I had all this plan in place. And of course, that points to Christ, right? As we look at um, the, the book of John, and we look at Johannine um, theology, right? We know that Christ was part of creation. He was creator, right? He was in the beginning. Christ was, was and is God eternally, right? All of the plan of sending Christ as God incarnate to die on our behalf was part of God's plan from the beginning. It was not a plan B. It was something that God has, has predestined, just like 
he predestined the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire and the Roman Empire and, and the United States of America. All these are, are blips on the radar. All of these are passing things. But the purposes of the Lord will stand. It was his plan to send Christ as the Redeemer for his people, to set us free from exile from the beginning. And these verses in Isaiah call out that reality of who our God is. So we see Cyrus as prefiguring Christ in a lot of different ways. He was a shepherd protecting the people. He was anointed, chosen to be a king. He was given victory, and he was foretold. All of these things are symbolic and prefigure Christ. But in verse 22 of Isaiah 45, the, the focus shifts. We are clearly not looking at the, the mountain in the foreground, but we're looking at the mountain in the distance. We're looking at Jesus. And, and listen to the words of verses 22 through 25. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not, shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Right? We're not talking about Cyrus the Great. We're talking about Jesus the Greatest. When, when we talk about to me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, we're talking about salvation for the Gentiles too. And that's one of the most amazing things to me as, as we've looked at the exile, that God is not only interested in saving his people Israel, but he's off, also interested in offering salvation to the Babylonians and to the Assyrians and to the Persians and to the ends of the earth. Ultimately, this verse 22 here may have appeared to be talking about the expansion of the Persian Empire, but what we're really talking about is the church. We're talking about the church of Jesus Christ making the news of God as Savior spread throughout all the earth. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Jesus is salvation for the Gentiles. I am God and there is no other. And verse 22 is, or 23 is amazing to me. Um, I have... Uh, I have never made this connection to Philippians chapter 2. But what an amazing connection to be made. And, and this is where I really want to um, end our time in exile together. All of this is brought to fruition through what we see in Jesus the Christ. God says, verse 23, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. We've gone through a long list of kings. We've seen how God qualifies them as good kings or bad kings. Regardless if they were a good king or not, they fell far short of his standard of holiness. Only one king passes muster. That's King Jesus. And it's to that name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Verses 24 and 25. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Two things I want to mention there before we wrap up in Philippians 2. One is that all of those who were incensed or, or in opposition to God, like Babylon, right? All of those will be vindicated. We look at the last chapters of Jeremiah, chapter uh, 50 and 51. It all talks about how Babylon would be crushed. For all the things that they did that were um, 
an offense to God and to his people, God made all those things right by allowing Cyrus to overthrow them, right? And we know that this system, that all of that is opposed to Christ, will be brought to an end, will be vindicated through Christ. And then in verse 24, some pretty powerful words. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. A clear, clear signaling of towards Christ. Only in him is there justification. Only in him is there forgiveness from sins. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we have some amazing theology, theology that was likely uh, sung, put to, put to music, a hymn, if you will, sometimes referred to as the, the hymn of Christ, a passage we all know well, um, but perhaps had not seen in light of Isaiah chapter 45. Perhaps we, we hadn't made that connection to how God, in promising to bring his people out of exile, used a pagan ruler, and ultimately, through his, his plan, would use... Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 5 and on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was king of kings, though he himself named and foretold and put rulers in power, he wasn't concerned with with his position, right? He humbled himself. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ESV footnote says this about verses 10 and 11. It says, While Christ now bears the divine name Yahweh, Lord, he is still worshipped with his human name, Jesus, since it was in the flesh that he most clearly displayed his divine glory to the world. This astounding union of Jesus' divine and human natures is reinforced by the allusion to Isaiah 45:23, in the words, Every knee should bow, and every tongue confess, which in Isaiah refer exclusively to Yahweh. The fact that these words can now be applied to God's messianic agent, Jesus Christ is Lord, shows that Jesus is fully divine. But the worship of Jesus as Lord is not the final word of the hymn. Jesus' exaltation also results in the glory of God the Father. This identical pattern is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 23-28. God gives Jesus messianic dominion over all creation, and everyone will one day rightly give him praise as their Lord. But when his kingdom reaches its fullness, Jesus does not keep the glory for himself. Instead, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. Even in his exaltation, Jesus remains the model of loving service to God. Cyrus the Great was an instrument in God's hand to set his people free from exile. And Jesus came in submission to God the Father to do the exact same thing. And in doing so, and in that obedience, he was given that title that only applies to God himself, that every knee should bow and every tongue would confess. So praise God. What we see is we're set free from exile. Your homework, you can read this on your own. We're out of time today. But read um, Ezra chapter 1. 
read Ezra chapter 5 and see how God used Cyrus to speak words that would send his people back to Jerusalem, that would send his people back with the authority to rebuild the temple, right? But what we know is that the temple that Christ came to rebuild, he built up in his church. Praise God for that.